Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So verse 1, uh, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death better than, better than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for a sad countenance, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This is vanity. Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud of spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the fools of bosoms. The bosom of fools. <laughs> Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. I'm going to stop here because the next phrase, consider the work of God for who can make straight what he has made crooked, is a question that Solomon asks right in the middle of this chapter. Um, it seems like Solomon's doing something that catches you by surprise. For those of you that have been with along this journey, um, Ecclesiastes 1 through 6, every chapter, they put the chapter dividers in right where you switch into a new philosophy. So we've gone through philosophies on just how humans live their lives and how we approach life as human beings in our own wisdom. And he uses the phrase, everything under the sun, every time he talks about it. And he says, under the sun, I've seen this. Under the sun, I've seen that. That's a catchphrase for everything on this planet, earth. So earthly wisdom is what we're digging at here. He goes through worldviews like hedonism. I want to party all the time. And he shows how that's not so wise. He goes through egoism. I'm going to live for myself and me only. He goes after the pursuit of money in one of the chapters. He goes after the pursuit of egoism or fatalism, uh, which is, ah, it doesn't matter what happens. So, you know, hyper-Buddhists. Uh, he goes through um, the study of everything, so the study of the natural world, all the scholars, the researchers, the book smarts, and being a, a person that just lives for learning. And then and he also starts to go after the pursuit of religion and the people that want to be holier than thou, and they're just going to live to be religious experts and, and kind of hold that over other people. And he concludes with that one too, that it is also vanity. And in chapter 6, he kind of brings us into this place where he's starting to talk about moral people. And this is a struggle for me because I'm kind of a moral person. But I didn't need God to be a moral person. I don't need Jesus or the salvation of Christ to be a good guy. So it's a struggle for me because I'm reading a lot of these things and I'm thinking, well, yeah, that's true. And we talked about that in chapter 6. Solomon leaves us at the end of chapter 6 with a phrase like, what who knows what's good for a man in life all the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun in other words who are we to think we know what we're talking about 
and it's an odd temptation that we have as good moral people that we're not going to be too hyper-religious, we're not going to lord our goodness over people, but to think we know better than other people how to live life. And Solomon kind of puts that question in front of us, well, who knows that? Being a good person is a logical non-Christian worldview. I know lots of non-believers that are pretty good people, and they're nice. And they've come to the conclusion of being nice, not because the Word of God tells them to, not because of Jesus Christ in your life, but because it makes sense. It has a great practicality to be a good person. Um, so here's the struggle with chapter 6, and, and as we go into chapter 7, when I just read all that to you, there's a part of us in the flesh that wants to go, yeah, that's true. I believe all that. That makes total sense to me. And you're thinking, yeah, sorrow's better than laughter. And not only that, but he's writing it, and he's writing it, and it sounds like the Proverbs again. The thing is, we're in the middle of Ecclesiastes. We're not in Proverbs. And some of these Proverbs are in direct contrast to the things we see in Proverbs. So what I want to do tonight is try to unpack what Solomon's doing here. And what he's doing is he's writing to an audience of people that could read. And in his generation, that was the priests and scholars. He's writing a book to us, people who can read and people that have the scriptures in front of them. And he's brought us down this trail where it's easy for us to dismiss the party lifestyle because we don't do it. It's easy for us to dismiss the pursuit of wealth because most of us don't do that. It's really easy to dismiss egoism and being cocky and arrogant because we don't even like those people. But when we get to this good moral person, that's hard for us to admit that maybe the way we think about life is actually in the flesh and it's not in Christ. And so this is, it's a struggle because I think most of us are in that world and I just pray we can go into this in that way. Here's the other thing. When I went through and started listening, like after reading this, this is like a month ago, and started listening to commentaries or listening to sermons and reading commentaries, there is almost, a, even within the Calvary movement, there are real differences on how pastors cover this chapter. So I'm going to take an angle on this that I don't even know if I agree with entirely, but it's kind of how I look at it and how I read it, and I'm really pulling largely from a thinking where, you know, Jeff Sowell in Madison calls this old man wisdom. I'm going to add grumpy old man wisdom. This is the wisdom that people come to at the end of their life when they're tired and they're wore out, and it's this grumpy old man wisdom, you know? Why try too hard? Uh, J. Vernon McGee called this lukewarm Christianity. Don't get too excited. Don't get too sad. Don't be a sinner. Don't be too righteous. Just balance it all out. And if you look at the whole of chapter 7, Solomon's looping us in a little bit. The key here, and I want to skip to the end. I said I was going to do this chapter a little different. Can you go to verse 27? We're going to, when we get to the end tonight, this is where Solomon's going to end up. He says, here's what I've found, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find out the reason which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man amongst a thousand have I found, one, but a woman amongst all these I have not found. Truly this is the only, this only have I found, that God made man upright, but they've sought out many schemes. We have tons of ways to convince ourselves that we're right. And this chapter is kind of one of them. And some of these are verses like I would say to people and talk to about people. But not everyone reads it that way. I want to just start out saying that. And Proverbs basically leads us from one axiom to the next. Uh, and we're looking at the worldview of the do-gooder, people that do good things. Um, so we'll dig into that. Verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment, 
and the day of death is better than one's birth. Note Solomon doesn't give us an intro for this section. It's clearly a section, but because he, he just wraps up in, in chapter 6 with a conclusion. So this is a new section. It's the first section of Ecclesiastes. He doesn't tell us this is under the sun, right? You know I love that phrase from past times we talked about this, right? Under the sun, vanity. This time he gives us no introduction, which should be something that makes us think a little bit. Not, uh, um, where was I? Okay. Good name is better than precious ointment. There's nothing wrong with that. A good name is a good thing, right? Precious ointments were used to cover up horrible odors in ancient times. And having a good name is better than precious ointment, but if you take the comparison or the visual, a good name covers up something that's corrupt and icky. So having a good name doesn't necessarily make you good. It's an interesting kind of phrase where he uses it, but he, he's saying it like this is kind of the true thing. But as we saw in 27, as he adds one thing to the next, it goes nowhere at the end of this chapter, right? At the day of one death is better than one's birth. And this is where you start to think, well, what's going on with this? So what I want to do each verse is this is kind of a good practice when we talk to other people that are good people or going to church, even churchgoers, and they're living kind of a lukewarm life because they'll say some things like this. And I think one of the things when you respond to half-truths is you respond with the scriptures. And I was really touched by where Satan's in the wilderness, or Jesus is in the wilderness with Satan, and Satan gives him half-truths that are trying to manipulate Jesus. And Jesus' response was always to say, yeah, but the word of God says this. And I'm going to, this is part of why I want to try my hat on this. If a good name is such a good thing, why then in John 15, 18, does it say, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first? So a good name is a good thing. In the flesh, that's easy, to, that's easy to accept, right? But what made Jesus so revolutionary is he didn't ask us to go get a good name, right? In both the books of Matthew and in Luke, it says no one can serve two masters. Either you hate one and love the other, or you'll be loyal to one and you'll despise the other. You can't serve both God and mammon. You can't serve both the world and the God who you want. In fact, of the disciples, if we take Judas out of the mix, 10 of the 11 remaining disciples were killed. They didn't die with a good name, according to the world. They were martyred for their beliefs. So this idea that we should just have a good name and, and that the day of our death is a good thing and we can be honored at that point, that's not the goal of the Christian. That's the goal of the good man. You see where this is a tough chapter? And this is, this is a difficult thing to unpack because everything in me wants to just be agreeing with everybody around me, to be on good terms with everybody around me. But we're not necessarily called to that. And it keeps going. He keeps building one thing on top of the other. Verse 2, it's better to go into the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that's the end of all men, and the living take that to heart. Okay, true. Knowing that we die is a serious matter, and we should be aware that we're all going to die. So we should agree on that point a little bit. Good people take that to heart. I, yes, there's a truth to this. The balance of the day-to-day -day knowledge is that everything ends. It's not necessarily a call for believers. It's a worldly wisdom that encourages us to take stock in the fact that we're eminently going to die. We're all going to die, soak it in, say la, breathe that. The problem with it is we're not going to die. That's the opposite of heavenly wisdom, right? So 
Jesus challenges the followers to, that, that want to go back to that house of mourning. You remember this story? They said, well, we got to go back. we got to bury this person. That's super important. That's Jewish people actually listening to this advice and wanting to do that sort of thing. And Jesus' response to that person is he's, in Luke 9, uh, 59, he says, Then he said to another, follow me. But, but he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus says to him, you remember this, let the dead bury their own dead. You go and preach the kingdom of God. That's an extreme perspective when you put it next to Ecclesiastes. Jesus asked for us to live life to the fullest, and instead of spending our time mourning each other, we should be out preaching the gospel. Further, verse 2 is actually a, 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 a kind of misdirection that he would give us because we're not going to die. For John 3.16, I, I don't have to go into deep Bible memorization here to find the contrast to what Solomon's doing here. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is not the end of all men. That's not a true statement. So in the same way that living the life of partying was not a true statement, Solomon's keeping on in that line in chapter 7. He's given us one more worldview that gets a little, a little tougher to struggle with for us. Finally, we're taught that death is not the all men. John 5, 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. They shall not come to judgment, but they shall be passed from death to life. Verse 3. First of all, this lens on this is when I started to see this and read it, the other commentators that worked through Ecclesiastes 7 where they really struggled with some of the verses we're coming to, with this lens, I didn't struggle with those verses at all. It was like, oh, I can see what Solomon's doing here. And suddenly you're like, oh my goodness, he's giving me another worldview, but he didn't give me the hint that this was under the sun. And I think what he was trying to do is talk to his priests and the people in that temple and give them a perspective and kind of draw them in and say, look at yourself too. You're living a life of vanity. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. Problem with that one is sorrow is not better than anything. Biblically, sorrow is a curse. Genesis 3.17, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and has eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow thou shalt eat of it the rest of the days of your life. Biblically speaking, sorrow's not better. It's a curse. But the old man, that grumpy old man wisdom, ah, it's better to just be upset than it is to be laughing like some crazy fool. I don't want to be cackling and happy. It's grumpy old man wisdom. If you're from any rural Minnesota area, you know these people. Right? This is kind of our culture in this area. We have stoic attitudes, brave chins. We can, un we can endure any winter. That's Minnesota, darn it. And we should be proud of that. We're good, stoic, healthy, rugged people, and we don't laugh like fools. The problem with that attitude is when you embrace sorrow, you simply stagnate in it. God replaces sorrow. Esther 9.22, As the days wherein the Jews rested from their enemies and the month was, which was turned from them from sorrow to joy and from mourning into a good day, that they should make the days of feasting and joy and of sending portions to one another and of gifts to the poor. We should be taking our sorrow and turning it into laughter. And if that's not happening, it's probably because we're living in an earthly wisdom, not a heavenly wisdom. God honors those that rejoice in him, 
despite the fact that our flesh and our earthly life, let's be honest, life on earth is kind of boring at the end of the day. When you kind of get through the foolishness of all these other worldviews and what's left is this stoic old man, grumpy old man wisdom, life can be kind of tedious. You get up, you go to work, you come to church, you eat food, you sleep, you get up, you do it all over again, and then you die. Or there might be something else. I don't mean to depress everyone. <laughs> Listen to this. And, and, and looking at people in the Bible that are after God's own heart, right? Who's that, Bible trivia people? David. Second Samuel 6.16, I love this. It's one of the things that has helped me in life. I think it's such a blessing. Now, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, uh, Michal, Michael, Saul's daughter looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she, his wife, despised him in her heart. She was a grumpy old man. And then David returned to bless his house, and is it Michelle, Michael, Michael, M-I-C-H-A-L, Michal? The daughter of Saul came out to meet David and said, how glorious was the king of Israel today? What do you mean? She's, she's fibbing to him. She didn't think he was glorious. She despised him uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants and one of the based fellows shamelessly uncovering himself. So David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father in all his house to appoint me ruler over the people, me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord. And even, and I will be, and <laughs> on top of that, honey, I will be even more undignified than this. And I will be humble in my own sight, but as for the maidservants of whom you've spoken, by them I will be held in honor. So instead of this sorrow is better than laughter, by a sad countenance the height is made better, that's just backwards. Sad countenances don't make your heart happy. They make your heart sad. And David chooses celebration over sorrow and over this dour attitude chooses something different. And I think God wants us to choose that too. We will always run into good people in the world that don't like it when we celebrate. When we're silly and we're joyful and we're nuts with things, I guarantee you there's going to be people that think that you're irreverent, that, you don't, that you're not being dignified enough. You're not holding yourself the right way. So when we bring ourselves back and we hold ourselves in, we put, us in, we put ourselves in a precarious situation. Jesus also promises to replace our sorrows with joys. John 16, 22. And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no one can take from you. What a beautiful thought. I even love how he puts sorrow and heart right next to each other, just like verse 3. It's almost like Jesus read Ecclesiastes. Verse 4. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So the lukewarm person recognizes a sober attitude in the face of death is better than laughter. But there's nothing that pairs wisdom with mirth here. Notice in verse 3 and verse 5, the phrase is better than is part of that. And in between those verses, Solomon just quietly takes the better than phrase out, which creates a spectrum, a difference. When you don't create that spectrum or difference, what you get is an either or, or what would be a dichotomy. In this case, you have a false dichotomy. 
The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. The heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It's a false choice because there is a third option, and that option is the heart of the, heart of the wise can be in a house of rejoicing. And in fact, that's biblical. There is a third option, and that is this house of peace, blessing, and rejoicing. Paul says this in uh, um, Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. So the house of joy, house of mirth, that's actually a command for us to be in that place where we're rejoicing. We can take our sadness and sorrows and turn them into rejoicing. Verse 5, it's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Well, it's, having wise people rebuke you, is, that's good, right? And that is, in fact, better than hearing fools make noise, which can be painful, right? So it's really true, but just, again, this is the same way in which Satan kind of took truths and turned them a little bit. Listen, compare this verse to Psalm 141, verse 5. Let a righteous man strike me, that's a kindness. Let him rebuke me, that's oil on my head. My head will not refuse it, for my prayer will be against the deeds of evildoers. It's better to hear the rebuke of wise than for, to, hear, to hear the song of fools. In Psalm 141, it says, the rebuke of the wise, that's like oil on my head. That's the pinnacle. It's not better than this horrible thing of listening. to. It's just better than fools. No, it's not. It's the top thing you can ask for from a brother or sister. Rebuke me. Correct me. If I'm reading this wrong, somebody please tell me. Right? He keeps going in, ver in, in verse 6. It's kind of connected to 5. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of a fool. This is vanity. So first we have this kind of ranking of rebuke of wisdom as slightly better than listening to fools. Then we have this idea of thorns under the pot. Uh, that one's not hard. Those of you that have ever done a campfire, if you want a good campfire, you need to eventually get to some decent logs on that thing, right? And it burns for a long time, and it's got substance to it. But what happens when you throw twigs into your fire? They just pop a few times, and they go. They don't add to the flame. They don't, there's no substance to them. There's nothing there. In the same way as good people, as kind of noble, decent, grumpy old men, when we hear fools talking, isn't it just kind of what you think is, ah, there's no substance to this? These people are just stupid and silly. And in the flesh, that's how we react to fools. It doesn't take a godly person to think fools are a waste of our time, right? The problem with that thinking is that you're judging people when you do it. Are you that much better than that fool? Are you that much more important? Do Christians ever get called fools by wise, by wise worldly wisdom people? Is it ever the case that Christians are the ones that are called silly, just like David was with McCall? It just sounds like a weird name. Maybe that was a godly thing. God gave her a weird name because he didn't want us to like her much. <clears throat> so this contrast of worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom, I want to take another thing. For some reason, and in my work Bible study, my wife Bible study, my kids Bible study, Ecclesiastes, and everywhere else that I'm trying to be in the Bible, for some reason, the last month and a half, I found myself in James. It was during one of Mike's sermons. I'm just reading James. And I'm in there, and I'm reading James, and, I, and all of a sudden it just pops out to me like, oh my goodness, James is point by point 
working his way through his responses to Ecclesiastes, almost like James read Ecclesiastes. If you really want to, an interesting study is to go back and reread the book of James with Ecclesiastes right next to it and go, oh my goodness, this is commentary. He's trying to make his point saying, don't be a good doing person. Your works don't save you, but don't do these things just to impress people. Don't be a do-gooder and don't be a grumpy old man, noble, stoic, chant person. He contrasts, he, uh, on a few comparison points, he, he leads off, if you look in chapter 3, worldly wisdom contrasts against heavenly wisdom. And he's basically saying there's two kinds of wisdoms. you got to choose. He addresses pleasure-seeking, just like the Solomon does, like going after the things of the world. He targets being good, like we have here in Ecclesiastes 6.1. And it's almost like he's responding to Ecclesiastes 6.1. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Right? A good name's not what you want. You don't, you don't want to be buddies with the world. Oh, I'm sorry, Ecclesiastes 7.1, right? We're in that chapter, Eric. Response to Ecclesiastes 7.4, look at that verse one more time. And here's James 4.9. Grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he lifts you up. In the kingdom, we don't have to reside in sorrow or think that a house of mourning is where we belong. We have something different. I bring this up because James takes a really different approach to how we should look at something like this. And if James is referring to and talking to Ecclesiastes 6, James actually asks the same question. In James 3.1, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? It's the same way that we end uh, chapter 6 in Ecclesiastes. So there's so many comparison points between James and Ecclesiastes that it's a really interesting thing to do it. So if I had a lot more time, I would have gone through the whole thing for you, but I thought that was a couple neat examples. I plan to keep working my way through James when I get done with Ecclesiastes. Maybe that's where we head next. In a worldly sense, we find it easy to be irritated by those that are less than us. Those fools, those crackling annoyances in the thing, but those crackling annoyances in the fire... Those are the people we should be reaching out to, mentoring, discipling, coaching, loving, caring for them like they're our brothers and sisters, not dismissing them like noise in the fire. Laughter, then, is not a curse. It's a blessing, and humility is the precursor to being lifted up. Once you give up thinking that you're all that special, it's a lot easier to be happy. Verse 7. I love this stuff. I'm sorry. I get too excited. I get that, but I just... For me, this is just amazing, and, it, and I get so much wisdom out of this, I hope. Surely oppression draw, destroys a wise man's reason, and bribe, a gift, debases his heart. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. True, it's interesting the contrast between pride and patience here. If you're a patience person, you wait on people. But prideful people don't wait on people because they think they're better than other people. Impatience leads to tons of evils in life. Don't hasten your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. So verse 7 and 8, I'm with you. I can see the truth in these things. Then you get to 9, which is there. Don't hasten your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. So first of all, we're told not to be happy and not to rejoice too much. Don't act like a bunch of laughing fools. And now we're told not to be angry and not to get upset about things. In other words, be lukewarm. Don't be too excited. Don't get too upset. Be a good, grumpy old man. Grumpy old man get upset, though, but not really. They just point their cane at you and tell you to knock that off, you crazy kids. 
it's true that we shouldn't be quick to anger. All over the Bible we see biblical characters that are quick to anger and it destroys their ministry. Moses was too quick to anger. Peter was too quick to anger. We see these characters where that's the failing they got to work on and they have to do it. So there's some deep truth. We should do that. But here's the not true part. Don't hasten your spirit to be anger for anger rests in the bosom of fools. We, wait a second. Is that truth? God gets angry. Is he a fool? Jeremiah 33, For what is the Lord, the God of Israel, says that the houses of the city and the royal palaces of Judah that have been torn down to be used against the siege and ramparts and the sword and the fight with the Babylonians, they will be filled with dead bodies of the people that I will slay in my anger and wrath. I will hide my face from this city because of its wickedness. God hates sin. It's a biblical truth. Anger resides in the heart of a God that cannot tolerate the arrogance, pride, wickedness, and injustice that men carry out on each other. And women. I'm not going to let you off the hook. Jesus gets angry. Matthew 21, 12. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all those who were bullying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money and the changers and the benches and those selling doves. You had people trying to make money right in the temple courtyard. And the, the thing with the doves is interesting. I've talked about this before. I love in the law that the rich people could bring in bulls and the not-so-rich people could bring in sheep and the poor people could go take a little time and catch a dove that was everywhere in these ancient cities. But what the people in the temple would do is they caught all the, the doves and the pigeons in the city so poor people couldn't give to the temple without coughing up some cash. It was horrible. It was in direct defiance of Levitical law and what God intended. He wanted everybody to be able to come into the temple and give something. And if you weren't financially rich, you could give your time, catch a pigeon, and bring it into the temple and sacrifice it. What a beautiful thing that the doors are open to the poor. But when you start cutting that off and making the poor people cough up their last cent to be, even be part of the kingdom, that ticked Jesus off. He's not a fool. So again, Solomon keeps looping us in with these kind of well, it's kind of true, but why doesn't that agree with the rest of the word? Verse 10, don't say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. The premise here is we shouldn't be looking backward. The basic the assumption of doing that is that you're discontent, right? And grumpy old men do this back all the time. When I was a kid, I had to walk to school with no shoes. And they're looking backwards. Back in the day, things were better. People were nicer. We had better civility. Our kids weren't looking at glowing screens so much. Darn it, back in my day, we just had a better place to live. So there's this idea of that. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable those who see the sun. Wisdom is good, that's true. But why put a condition on that? With an inheritance? Wisdom's good when you have money? And it's profitable those who see the sun. Wait a sec, he's used the word sun before in this book. Solomon's given us a hint here that he's taken us for a ride. He's looped us into some earthly wisdom. To Solomon, if it's under the sun and all of us that are under the sun, it's good for everyone. Here's the crazy part. Listen to Proverbs 2.10. This is what it says about wisdom. Wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will be pleasant for your soul. Proverbs 3.13. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. Wisdom's a blessing. Wisdom is unconditionally wonderful. It's a gift to have heavenly wisdom. It's a gift to have earthly wisdom, too. But to say that it has to come with an inheritance, 
that it has a profit to it, it's kind of this sick idea, isn't it? That everything's about profit and gain. Verse 12, for wisdom's a defense as, that's a comparative likeness term, money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives those life to those who have it. True, wisdom has some value. Is it as valuable as money? Is it a comparison to having money? Wisdom doesn't give life. Wisdom's actually better than money. Proverbs, again, the thing with Proverbs is it's the same author. You could say this is just one of the biblical authors' take on it, and here's another biblical. It's the same guy writing the book, disagreeing with himself. <coughs> Proverbs 28, 26, those who trust in themselves are fools. Those who walk in wisdom are kept safe. Proverbs 8.11, for wisdom is more precious than rubies. So here it's more precious than rubies, but over here in Ecclesiastes it's as precious. You see where Ecclesiastes gets used out of context? It's more precious than rubies. He goes on in Proverbs 8.11, nothing you desire compares to her. There's no comparison to wisdom. So he ends this section with son to give us a little bit of a clue. He's been giving us a ride, but he didn't give us that hint at the beginning of the section. He didn't tell us he was going to do that. And right here in the middle, he gives us this smack drab of truth. Verse 13, consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? Well, that's a shift in tone, considering God. I wrestled with this one. Because if it's true that he's given us earthly wisdom and not that wisdom, what's going on? And as I was driving home from work today, so I've been sitting on this verse for a month and a half, all of a sudden it hit me the word consider. As a believer, is it our job to consider God? Have you met people that dwell upon the consideration of God? God is amazing. He is wonderful. He is glorious. And I'm like, wait a second. I know a lot of people like that. Considering God? We're not called to consider God. We're called to rejoice in God. We're called to put our to sacrifice ourselves to God. We're called to give everything up for the call of Jesus Christ, for He's the way, the truth, and the life. And no one that goes un, into Him perishes, but has eternal life. We're supposed to be rejoicing and celebrating and magnifying the name of God everywhere we go. But earthly wisdom, it's perfectly okay to consider God. Take your time with that. Just dwell upon God. Again, another way to read this is consider God. Who can make straight the ways he's made crooked? He's built this earth. There's, not, there's some truth to that too, right? I mean, there's two ways to read this kind of verse. Should we consider God? Yes, you should take time to consider God. And then you should celebrate that God's given, given up his only son for your life. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Wait a second. Not only do, we dis, do you see Solomon disagree with Proverbs, he's disagreeing with verses 2 through 4. Do you see that? He's disagreeing with himself in the same chapter. It's not like he got older and forgot things. But in the days of adversity, consider, surely God has appointed one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. We have to align ourselves with the truth that we're limited. So instead of mourning, we selflessly know that God ordained everything. Why mourn? It's God's plan. At some point, you have to trust God. There really is no worth, earthly wisdom that holds on to that. Here's another way to read 13 and 14. It's right in the middle of this chapter, and it has exactly four sections on either side of it. And you know if you've seen some other, that's chiastic form. 
So the Solomon's, if that's true and we're getting set up, we should see four more half-truths before he comes to conclusion. And that's exactly what we kind of see. So, I've seen everything in my days of vanity. Man can find out nothing, but he has seen these things. Watch out. Solomon gives us another little gentle cue that he's about to get back into this grumpy old man wisdom. He gently uses the phrase, I have seen. Not God has told me, not God has shown something to me or revealed to me. And he also has not a period at the end of this, but a colon. Do you see that? A colon implies that we're about to have a list. So he's going to give us a list after this, and his list is going to be under the banner, under the heading of, I've seen everything in my days of vanity. I'm an old man. I know what I'm talking about. Here's what I see. Frankly, when I look at that sort of thing, and I'm reading it with that lens, and I'm wrestling with it, I'm so impressed with Solomon's ability to write. That's kind of genius. It's really high art in, in some way, shape, or form that he's doing that because you could read through that quick and not catch that he's, he's pulling you right back into this earthly wisdom which everything in us wants to agree with. There's a just man who perishes in righteousness. There's a wicked man who prolongs his life in wickedness. In chapter 8, he's going to expand on that concept and do a whole chapter on that. So I'm going to kind of skip over it for now. Don't be overly righteous nor overly wise, why should you destroy yourself? Without commentary, I'm just going to read Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. By the works of the law, rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Isaiah 60.10 says, Then all your people will be righteous, and they will possess the land forever. They are the shoot I have planted, the work of my hands. They display my splendor. Our righteousness in Christ displays God to other people. Romans 10.4 Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteous for righteousness for everyone who believes. Verse 16, I'll read it again. Don't be overly righteous or overly wise. Why destroy yourself? Why set yourself out as a holier-than-thou person that everybody in the school cafeteria can pick on? Why put yourself out there? Why hang yourself out? Why go to work and be the Christian person and just annoy everybody around you? You're just going to kill your reputation with others. Why bother? Verse 17, he flips to the other side. Don't be overly wicked. Don't be foolish. Why would you die before your time? Don't do dumb stuff. True grumpy old man wisdom. Verse 16 and 17 together, avoid extremes. Be a little bit good, a little bit bad. There's an old country song that says, five-card poker on Saturday night and church on Sunday morning. You know, do a little bit of bad stuff, a little bit of good stuff, ride the middle road. Again, this is a false dichotomy. It's not the case that you're overly righteous or overly stupid and foolish. What about being righteous in Christ? And Solomon's disadvantage here is he didn't know the plan of Jesus Christ, right? Earthly wisdom didn't get him there, and that's the whole point of Ecclesiastes. It's why James is like so excited to respond to this, because after hundreds of years, the, new, the disciples could see the answer to all of this. Wait a second. We can live and be righteous and be holy in Christ. It's a beautiful thing. Revelations 3.15, John writes, I know your works. 
that you're neither hot nor cold, and I wish you were cold or hot. He's speaking on behalf of the um, of God here. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Don't be too righteous. Don't be too wicked. At the end of the day, God's going to vomit you out of his mouth if you buy into earthly wisdom. If you stick with that, it's a dead end. You should be overly righteous in Christ. It's good that you grasp this in verse 18. I, my grandpa used to actually say things like that to me. Sean, it's good you're listening to me. Also, don't remove your hand from the other. I give up on that line. I have no idea what that line means. After we're done, if you have some insights on that line, you let me know. But I have no, I couldn't find it, and none of the commentaries touched it. For he who fears God will escape them all. It's good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them, God, escape them all. Is the fear of God what brings us salvation? Or is this, again, old man wisdom? Demons fear God, Right? Are demons on their way to salvation? There's no escape for those that cling to wickedness. Fear is not our path to salvation, and I'm so happy we have a God that didn't make fear our path to salvation. We should fear God. There's a little bit of truth here, but fear of God is not what saves us. You know what saves us? I'm going to go to the Old Testament to answer this one. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. He's my God I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. That is not lukewarm thinking that we see throughout the Bible. Psalm 37, 39, the salvation of the righteous, oh, there are righteous, comes from the Lord. He's the stronghold in the time of trouble. Our salvation is not our fear. It's our love and adoration of a holy God. Solomon knows that. He's playing us, the wise, shrewd old cat. Verse 19, wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. Is wisdom what strengthens us? Yeah. Exodus 15.2 would add to that a little bit. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him and my Father's God and I will exalt him. Yeah, we just read that one. Matthew 6, But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be given to you as well. Wisdom's a good thing. And we don't need Christ to show us that being smart and shrewd is a good thing. But we need Christ to show us that it's not the only thing. That there's something above and beyond the wisdom that strengthens our city. And it's not a ruler that we should be comparing ourselves to. Verse 20, there's not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. When Solomon wrote that, that was a true statement, right? It's not a true statement anymore. With Christ, we see a man who is sinless. Romans 3.23, all of sin and come short of the glory of God, that's true. Romans 3.10, there is not one righteous, no, not one. Don't pretend that we are. But that's not a justification for being a sinner. Right? But grumpy old men is, ah, there's nobody that's perfectly holy. Go keep playing your, doing your stuff, tampering a little bit, toying with sin. Verse 21, also do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your heart is known that even you have cursed others. Don't let it bug you if people think ill of you. 
It's an interesting phrase. Phrase. I, there's earthly wisdom to that. Should we be bothered if people don't like us? Or do you just shrug it off and say, I don't care? Right? Luke uh, 6, verse 28, 27 and 28. But I say to you, but I say to you, this is Jesus, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who spitefully use you. It's so easy to not care what people say when they curse us. It is holy and righteous and good and amazing when you can turn that around and bless those people. Not ignore them, but bless them. Matthew 5.10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Colossians 4.1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Ephesians 6.9, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, there is no partiality with them. I read you the two masters verses, because if you have a servant and they're cursing you, that should bother you. You should treat your servants well. If people work for you and you're an employer or a boss, Pat, when you ran your Perkins, your employees should know that you were looking out for them. You expected good work, but if they were cursing you as a believer, that should be a red flag. Biblically speaking, the Bible says we should be above reproach as believers. Both Timothy and Titus point out the same thing. Colossians 1.21, And you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled his body of flesh, his death, in order to present you wholly blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. That's in direct contrast to that idea that we shouldn't care what people think. We should. We just shouldn't be run by it. We should be run by God and the Holy Kingdom. Verse 23, All this I've proved by wisdom, and I said I will be wise, and it was far from me. So Solomon here gives up the game. And this is where the the rest of this chapter kind of falls into place. All this I've proved by wisdom, earthly wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. This wasn't wisdom. It's what I've proved to you right now, but it's not wisdom. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? So this is a weird turning point in Ecclesiastes. We've gone through all these worldviews, and Solomon has logically taken us through with everything he has at his disposal mentally. He's walked us through these worldviews, and now he's to my worldview to try to be a good person. And he's basically saying, try, if you try to be a good person, it doesn't work. There's nothing good about us. We were just talking before the service about what gets us into heaven. We don't. It's not in our power. We are at the mercy of God. Isn't that amazing? There's something holy about that. 2 Corinthians 4, 7, we have this treasure and we're jars of clay that show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Isaiah 59, 19, I didn't speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. John 45, 23, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. I love bouncing through the scriptures a little bit. There is a truth. Who can find it out? We can. God didn't hide it. He didn't put it under a bush. 
He wants it to shine, and he wants us to shine. I applied my heart to know, Solomon says in 25. Not the word of God, not the law of God. He applied his own heart to know these things, <laughs> earthly wisdom. To search and seek the wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly and even the foolishness of madness. And I find it more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. And here's what I found, says the preacher. The word preacher there is also a Hebrew word for debater or assembler or someone who gathers thinking together. Adding one thing to the other to find out the reason, which my soul still seeks, but I can't find. One man amongst a thousand have I found, but a woman amongst these all I have, I have not found. This is the heart of what Solomon has done as he's gone through all these worldviews. He can't find a worldview that brings him peace and hope. There is nothing that his soul is satisfied by. Worldly and earthly wisdom does not bring us joy. It doesn't satisfy the soul. The one thing after the other, the sequential logic that he's brought before us, doesn't work. Please hear this. Being a good person still leaves the preacher, Solomon, without fulfillment. Being good doesn't do it. It's the whole message of Jesus Christ. You ever notice that people make the same mistakes over and over again? Keep going. Oh, let me say it this way. You ever notice that I keep making the same mistakes over and over again? You ever look in your own heart and go, why do I keep making this mistake? Why do I keep going back to this sin? Why do I keep doing it? Because you're thinking about I all the time. Have you asked God to get, release you from that sin? Have you prayed to God and say, I can't get rid of this. I'm powerless. I keep going back to it. God, I need you. You've got to take me out of this. Solomon's point is that he doesn't find the peace that he needs, but brothers and sisters in Christ are rare in this world. I don't think the, the male-female part there, I don't think he's being sexist. He's basically, he's met thousands of people, and he's saying, I haven't found these people. I've found out of maybe out of a thousand men, I found one guy I can call a brother that gets what I'm trying to say right here. Right? And he had enough wives. He actually had wives in those kinds of numbers, right? And he just can't find people that understand this, which means most of us wrestle with this earthly wisdom all the time. Truly, this only have I found. Now he turns to God. Verse 29. God has made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. God made us the way he made us, but we humans have got all these schemes and plans to try to be holy, but those schemes and plans are exactly our sin. They catch us in there. Isaiah 55, 9, I'm going to kind of close on this thought. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. That's God talking to us. And my thoughts than your thoughts. Stop trying to outthink God. Stop trying to come up with a plan to be holy. Stop trying to pretend that we are holy. Brothers and sisters, friends, we're not holy. We'll never get there. It's futile. The only hope we have is in Jesus Christ. We start looking at each other and thinking one person's more holy than another person. We have lost right there. We're not. We're broken. We're sinners. We come to them. The only difference is some of us are public with our struggles. And some of us are better with other gifts and talents. And what a blessing it is that God uses that wee bit of gift that each of us has to make a body that can carry forth the good news of Jesus Christ. There's not one among us that's holy. There's not one among us that's good. He uses the broken and fallen people of the world to do his majestic, 
holy, righteous, grand work. The thing we have to do is walk away from earthly wisdom. This don't be too excited, don't be too sinful, don't be too this or too this. God wants us to be extreme. Either get on the team and rejoice in all things or get off the team and stop calling yourself a Christian. Be hot or cold. I would rather you were that because if you're, if you're just lukewarm, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. What an amazing, powerful thing. What a convicting thing. And Solomon puts us right there, and he doesn't even know about Jesus Christ, which shows you what kind of thinker this guy was. But he comes to the point. There's, we have nothing. We need Jesus Christ. Again, a great study. Go back to James and think of James as a commentary on Ecclesiastes and start looking at how James responds to some of these things because he can't wait to tell the truth. I want to end on a happy note. And that's this. What seems so far away from us, God makes so easy. He's revealed it to us. Listen to Revelations 3.20. Some of you probably even have this memorized. Behold, I stand at the door at knock. We don't even have to go to God. He's waiting and knocking on our door. If you're here tonight, that's no accident. He's knocking at your door. He's trying to get to you. And he says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come into him and dine with him and he with me. We have a God that wants to dine with us. Dear Lord, thank you so much for your wisdom. Your wisdom is just counterintuitive to everything that we can think of. Lord, we want to smack our enemies and you tell us to turn our cheek and love them. We want to be aloof to the problems around us, Lord, and you tell us to dig into those. You tell us to serve the poor and, and bring justice to those who need it, Lord. And at the same time, you tell us to... Uh, Pray for the leaders of our country, Lord. You, you tell us to be your light, your hands and your feet, and we don't even know how to do it. So help us to trust in your wisdom, your heavenly wisdom. And the start of that is the humility and the knowledge, Lord, that you are God and your ways are above our ways. Help us to just fall into that, to be confident that you have our next steps for us. We don't have to plan those. And Lord, help us to love one another. The body and the church is where we get to practice these skills. Help us to just be better at caring for one another, encouraging one another, sharing our weaknesses with one another instead of pretending to be holy with one another. What a waste of our time. Lord, help us to be honoring you in all things that we do and say. Be with us the rest of this week as we go to work, as we go home to our families, Lord, as we deal with our friends and acquaintances. Lord, help us to just be humble, simple, lovers of an almighty of God, seeking righteousness, Lord, because it's all we have. Lord, thank you for this night, thank you for this time, and thank you for your holy word. In Jesus' name, we say. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.